welcome. We are so glad that you are here. I'm Christopher Mack, one of the pastors here at Vox. Today for our homily, looking at what gods we trust. And sometimes when I'm teaching the Enneagram, uh, I'll ask people to think about a moment when they were all of a sudden off kilter, where something didn't go as it was anticipated, and then ask them to think about, like, you know, how did you respond? What were you feeling? And uh, I can think of a moment for me when I was actually right at this spot. Uh, the first time I ever came to share a homily with you, uh, when we were still in the process of getting to know each other, and yes, indeed, there was going to be, like, a, a vote on whether I would be here. Uh, I had, unbeknownst to myself, been pronouncing a certain civil rights leader's name incorrectly, and uh, I did figure that out before my homily, and I wanted to quote this civil rights leader, and so I was like, I've got to, you know, it's like one of those things, once you learn something the wrong way, you know, it's so hard to unlearn it, and I had been, I mean, like, like a mantra, like saying this name over again, over and over again the correct way to, like, get it so I could be here, and I was like, I don't want to miss that, I'm going to be here, and I want to do that, and it's right at this space, and it came there, and I mispronounced his name again, I was like, Aah! you know, it's like, I just it was like, if you could somehow catch the audio waves that have just come out of your mouth and try to wrestle them back in. And immediately I felt, you know, off kilter and discombobulated and like, I, this was the one thing. You had one job, Christopher, and you didn't do it. Um, and for me, what I often uh, fall into there is, is a sense of shame, uh, a sense of like, oh, the image that I'm wanting to curate and cultivate uh, has been marred and flawed, and now what do I do? And for all of us, we, that may not be what you fall into, that might not be your thing, but for all of us, we have something that we fall into. And I think the gods, so to speak, that we trust, uh, the things that truly are the things that ground us or that center us, or that at least maybe if they don't do those things, numb us uh, or give us some sense of pseudo-safety, um, are often the things that we turn to in those moments. Uh, that can be any number of things, right? I'm a big Netflix number, uh, so I can just, you know, easily sort of get lost in an entire season or three of a show, if it's even semi-good. Uh, for others of us, you know, it might be just death scrolling through social media. It's like, I know the world's on fire, so I just really need to make sure I feel every spark and flame of what's going on right now. Speaking of on fire, I'm already sweating right now, so this is going to be bad news. Uh, I will probably be a puddle by the end of this homily. But um, we all have different things that we look to, whether it's groups that we scapegoat, uh, people who we want to say they're the issue, if we could just get rid of them, if they could just see it my way, uh, Maybe other people that we're running to or things that we're doing to try to self-soothe, to comfort, to heal us. And as a nation, we have at least on our currency, in God we trust. And I think when we've lived through the last few weeks that we've lived through, it really begins to call to question for us, what gods do we in fact trust in? What are the things behind the thing that we aren't naming that 
continue to wreak havoc and sow violence and erode rights and dignity and personhood to people, particularly in recent decisions uh, towards women, towards people of color, the LGBTQIA community is incredibly concerned. So many marginalized communities feeling pushed further and further to the margin. Which of course made me think of Shira. And you may have seen, speaking of Netflix, the, uh, the show, like, you know, the toys that made us. And they talk about the beginning of the toy He-Man and Mattel was really struggling. They wanted to break the hold that Kenner had with their Star Wars uh, toys. And so they did some focus groups and they found that particularly for their boys, because that's what they were looking at primarily, they wanted a boy's toy. Uh, and they, they found that the boys really resonated with the term power. And so if you remember the 80s, uh, cartoon series or toys toy line of he-man his his signature slogan is i have the power right it's it's this like they were like we want every boy to know if the thing that you're looking for as a kid you're tired of your parents telling you what to do and how to do it and where to do it and you want to have the power well this is the toy for you i have the power and when Adam would turn into He-Man, he would hold his sword aloft and he would say, by the power of Grayskull, I am He-Man. And it's interesting because when it came to She-Ra, who was basically, they realized like, hey, we think this could be more than a boy's toy. We think that we could really break into the girl's toy market as well if we basically just did all of this, but put a woman instead of a man in there in very gendered thinking. That's what they were doing in the 80s. It's what some of us can still find ourselves doing today. Um, that when She-Ra holds her, short, her sword aloft and transfers from Adora to She-Ra, she doesn't say by the power of Grace Skull. She says by the honor of Grace Skull, which I found particularly interesting in terms of languaging and messaging uh, that was being disseminated then. And even though I have not seen all of the reboot that Netflix did with She-Ra, I did watch a couple of episodes in preparation for this. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what I, that's what I call work. I watched a couple of episodes of She-Ra on Netflix to prepare for my sermon and uh, noticed at least in those couple of episodes that even in the more modern adaptation, she's still saying, by the honor of Grace Skull, not the power of Grace Skull. And to make no mistake, she's an incredibly empowered superhero individual, but language matters. And it's interesting, the subtle or perhaps not so subtle distinctions that are being made. Boys, you were doing this in the name of power and women, you were doing this in the name of honor. And what that communicates about how we understand our relationship to power and who gets to wield it and what they get to wield it for. Um, Song me Susie Park, who, as I understand it, never met them, but I believe uh, teaches right here in Austin. Uh, in reflecting on our passage today, says, the real star of this story is an anonymous, displaced servant girl who transforms Naomi's life with her statement about the existence of a healing prophet in Israel. This text focuses on the ways in which those on the margins function as significant and faithful conduits of Yahweh's restorative gifts.
And so though this is in many ways looked at as a story of Naaman, this incredibly powerful figure, and we get this very interesting, we'll read it in just a second again, uh, initial description of him. Perhaps we can be looking throughout this story for the function of those on the margins and how they really are the ones who seem to have the crucial insight for where real healing and liberation and transformation takes place. So as our story begins in verse 1, we get all kinds of biography, at least if you're thinking about like the biblical text that it usually is pretty sparse. You know, maybe you get like their name and where they're from or their name and like their role. But we get a lot more than that comparatively for Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered through leprosy. So we're told a lot of things right off the bat about Naaman. I don't know. I'm trying. I've heard his name pronounced differently. So it's most commonly Naaman. I'm trying to give it a little bit of Naaman flair. That may not be. That may not be consistent throughout this homily. Is uh, he's seen as a picture of valor? He's an insider. We're told he's a great man. He's a mighty warrior. He's highly favored and highly favored by the most important person in his society. He is general to the king of Aram, and he is victorious. We are given quite the CV or resume. I mean, like, this guy would not be on Indeed for long. Like, you're going to snatch this one up. And yet, the very last line of the first verse and he suffered through leprosy. He had this skin disease, and it sort of is the shadow that seems to place perhaps in jeopardy or at least in tension his access to power and to influence and to continue to live the life that he is wanting to live. But it's important to remember that this is a text that is being read by Hebrews, by the people of Israel. And Aram is this enemy nation. And Naaman would have been the head general of the enemy nation that has attacked them, that has destroyed their communities, that has taken lives of their lost, of their loved ones. This is a very, for the community that originally received this text, a very loaded individual. Two quick observations about power from this text. One is that power, esteem, and resources don't guarantee happiness, nor do they exempt us from pain. Right off the bat we have with Naaman, though he has seemingly everything going for him. That does not mean that he gets to opt out of the same challenges of being a human being. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have tragedy find him the way all of us at times feel like tragedy finds us. And that depending on how we steward power, we may either be cut off or connected to alternative wisdom. I would like to suggest that what we see in the the unnamed anonymous servant uh, is this insight to an alternative wisdom, but that the power that Naaman has uh, can be either used to keep him shielded from accessing that 
or it can be used to learn and to listen and to come alongside and ultimately to access that. And that is the great question that we find ourselves with. So now let's meet this uh, enslaved woman. Verse two, now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife. So if we weren't aware that there has been some tension, some hostilities between these two nations, these two cultures, it's brought front and center to us here. There is someone that is a part of Naaman's household who probably saw her community savaged and destroyed, who knows what was done to her in the process of her enslavement as the spoils of war, um, but none of it would have likely been very good. And now she finds herself enslaved to this general in his household, particularly as the slave or servant to Naaman's wife. And this young girl, in the Hebrew it's like this small, small girl, um, really trying to emphasize sort of the, the vulnerability here of this woman who would have, I think, every reason to be like, go leprosy, skin disease, I see you, yeah. And we can understand that. Again, thinking about the last few weeks and the way many of us have found our hearts sickened and I've even had very real questions about, is it safe to be in certain states? Is it safe to be in these United States? How united are these states when so many rights seem to be eroding decision after decision after decision of Supreme Court? It can be really easy to want to allow resentment and bitterness and hatred and violence to become the only tools that we traffic in when we think about those people who are behind all of this. And yet in this servant girl, we see verse three, she said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Apparently the skin disease that Naaman has is at least known throughout the household. I would imagine as a person of resources, he has done everything he can. We might think of the gospel story of the woman who had the hemorrhaging of blood, and we're told that through many doctors seeking cures, they had basically taken all that she had from her, and she had exhausted every avenue. And though Naaman is certainly still wealthy and powerful, we can imagine that he might have utilized all of that wealth and power and network and influence to try any and everything he could to deal with this skin disease, and yet it still remains. And the servant girl, this anonymous, unnamed servant girl who has been a captive, taken out of her homeland, likely seen some of the most traumatic things imaginable and likely experienced and undergone some of the most traumatic things imaginable, has the insight that offers a different way from the bottom up, not from power of top down into this way of healing and transformation. This enslaved girl is the picture of vulnerability. In Aram, she's a foreigner. She's been enslaved through conquest. She's young. She's a woman. She's small. She's anonymous. Her existence couldn't be more precarious in this text. 
She is the very picture of vulnerability to us, and yet she speaks this word of a wisdom that confounds the empire, that confounds the courts and the kingdom of this world, and says, you know, there's, there's this prophet in this country that you don't think much of, and if I'm going to be truthful, even the king of that country doesn't think much of this prophet, Elisha, but he's got this alternative wisdom and power and way of living in the world, and if you could humble yourself to access it, you might find yourself freed from this perpetual cycle of power that is only experienced through violence towards others, that has this sense of scarcity that only says, the only way I can be safe is if I know that I'm destabilizing other people to add to my sense of resources and protection. She offers this alternative truth that she speaks to power. There's a practice of listening to the vulnerable conversation in our life. This enslaved girl whispers this counterintuitive hope of a power beyond the bounds of empire, a hope within everyday life and beyond our usual arrangements. The perceived vulnerabilities have opened up a different knowing of creative resources. And so the question becomes, how can we listen into the conversation of our own vulnerabilities and of the vulnerable? The poet David White says, whatever you want to happen will not happen. But equally, whatever the world wants to happen for you will not happen either. And what happens is this meeting. And in it, that meeting, you overhear yourself being surprised by your reality, by the larger context that you haven't yet explored. So you're trying to overhear yourself whom you didn't know you knew, and you're trying to speak it out loud in the world so it can be known consciously. There should be a sense of surprise when you're working at that edge and a sense of being gifted. David White calls this uh, the conversation of being in the frontier of our own identity, of listening into our own vulnerabilities and of the vulnerabilities of the world. And I wanted to read a poem of his as sort of a reflective practice and exercise as we would think, what would it look like if perhaps in this text it is the vulnerable and the marginalized that have the key insight? What would it look like for us to be in conversation with the vulnerable within our own selves and within our communities? And how might we start that process? So this poem that I want to read is a bit of a reflective meditation will invite us into that space to reflect on that. The Start, Close In by David White. Start, close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know. The pale ground beneath your feet your own way to begin the conversation. Start with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To hear another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes an intimate 
private ear that can then really listen to another. Start right now. Take a small step. You can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing close in, the step you don't want to take. That poem invites us to consider the thing that we have been avoiding, the conversation that we have been refusing to have, that we don't have to have all the answers, but perhaps we just have to be willing to acknowledge it, to welcome it, to regard it, to take that first step of saying, this is in the room with me, with us. Now, what are we going to do about it? Our passage continues. Verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. Verse 7, when the king of Israel reads the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So this message from one who is on the margins is heard by empire and is translated into the language of empire. So Naaman goes to his king and his king says, I will write you a letter because I have the power and I will try to get you the influence that you can have to go there. And here's all the wealth and resources that you need to ensure that our language of power and tit for tat can still ensure that we have this secure existence. Naaman solicits power, prestige, wealth, and influence. The king of Israel centers himself and sees the appeal for aid as a threat, right? It's like, my God, why are you trying to do this? We've already been at war. Why are you trying to expose this? Empire is only hearing empire echoing through and through. It's only hearing invitations to violence and into insecurity. And so this new hope that has been introduced is temporarily doubled down on through old dynamics and ways of understanding. Frederick Douglass, in reflecting on July 4th, these are just a few excerpts. I hope you've had the chance to read his reflection on July 4th. Says, would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty, that he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented, I do not despair of this country. The doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began with hope. Hank Willis Thomas, uh, in his work that is on the screen called Stars and Bars, uses decommissioned 
prison uniforms. So these black and white stripes that you're seeing are actually decommissioned prison uniforms. Uh, and invites us to think about how some people's liberty seemingly is inextricably linked with other people's incarceration, with other people's lack of liberty, how two different understandings of the same reality can be happening simultaneously. And he says it's also not lost on him that stars and bars, which is what he's entitled this art piece, is also what the Confederate flag has been named or nicknamed as well. And so this conversation about what liberty looks like and who truly gets to have freedom and whose humanity and autonomy is preserved and valued and whose is seemingly sacrificed is a perennial question. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sends a messenger to Naaman saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and clean. So from the margins to the mighty, Naaman makes a grand and impressive entrance with the trappings of power and prestige, right? It's like he rolls up and there are Hummers and there are airplanes and helicopters and all the trappings of military success and power. It's like the whole highway has been shut down so that Naaman can show up in grand fashion at the doorstep of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says to one of, I don't know if it's a friend or a servant or whatever, it's a, called a messenger in this text. Hey, why don't you go tell him, here's what he needs to do. It's kind of like, I can't, you know, I got my shows. My shows are on right now. I can't, I can't be bothered with this. Um, and so he sends this messenger that has this very simple statement. Just go over to the River Jordan nearby and dip in it seven times and you will be clean. Elisha subverts the military spectacle by sending this go-between, and a simple counterintuitive invitation is extended of humble hope. Verse 11, but Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And he turned away and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? Again, we see servants with the deciding, insightful perspective, correcting. <laughs> if, you, if you stay moored to your sense of power and violence, it's only going to destroy you. We have learned on the margins what it means to do something simply and humbly. Can you learn, rather than only flexing and expressing more and more violence, what it looks like to humble yourself and learn a different way because your failure to do so is literally going to destroy you. 
We see the rage of this nationalist machine. Naaman is insulted. His sense of self-importance has been questioned. His nationalist exceptionalism is displayed and the disdain for the host country's cultural practices and natural resources. You could imagine him saying, I'm not going to drink the water in Flint. Are you kidding me? Hand me, where's the Fiji water bottle, please? Anybody? I'm not going to do that right now. I shouldn't have to live the way these people live. I'm entitled to a life that is above and beyond this. I saw on social media, uh, someone commented that really dystopian fiction is when what people who are on the margins have to deal with every day happens to people of affluence, right? That that's when we then realize, oh, hey, it was maybe not okay, but acceptable that other people were living like this. But if I have to live like this too, then something is deeply wrong. And this seems to be where Naomi is at. But the servants extend this way call of beauty and simplicity for him to honor a different perspective. He's invited out of his nationalism. And we know the threat that particularly Christian nationalism is posing to our own country right now. I'm reminded of the words of Thomas Paine, who says that persecution is not an original feature in any religion, but is always the strongly marked future of all religions established by law. So we are called not into a Christian nationalism or a nationalism of any kind, but instead to continue to work together in solidarity for the rights of all people everywhere, for each and every one of us. And Naaman is starting, hopefully, to get it. The invitation is extended, and will you wash and be clean? And yes, he does, and... He is. And so I want to end our time thinking through what it might have looked like after he has been healed in these waters that he had previously disdained and is returning back to Aram in service. How might Naaman's healing by and newfound service to Yahweh have changed his return to Aram? How might his understanding of vocation have shifted Does he become a mighty pacifist or a powerful peacemaker? How could his relationship with his servants radically been reimagined? Did he become a great liberator, seeing that his very existence would not have continued had it not been for the mercy of the servants and the marginalized in his own life? You see, it's not enough for Naaman to be transferred. We need our systems, we need our world to experience transformation and healing, because our refusal to do so shows us what gods we serve. I want to close this homily with a prayer from Oscar Romero. Many of you might remember that he was a Catholic priest, often accused of liberation theology because he was standing up very decisively against the increased fascism of the regime that was taking power in El Salvador during his time. And so in 1980, he was executed while he was offering a mass. And this is his prayer. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction 
of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. That is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but as that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Amen.